You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor Institute Ireland Conference. The seventh annual Tudor Institute Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2017. The conference was generously supported by the College of Arts, Social Sciences and Celtic Studies at NUI Galway, the School of Humanities at NUI Galway, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Disciplines of History and English at NUI Galway, the Women's History Association of Ireland and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. John Cronin from the Irish Association of Professional Historians. His paper was entitled Donald Cam O'Sullivan Bear and the First Battle of Ockram, 1603. This is not my usual uh, area of endeavour, by which I mean tutors are not my usual area of endeavour. But it arose out of the Irish Battlefield Project, which Damien was speaking to you earlier, and it arose by accident. Uh, this particular action at Ockram was not originally part of the plan, of the programme. But one of the advisory committee came to Inneclan one day and said, maybe we should take a look at it just in case we could do something good in the future. I was asked to write about it. I wrote very briefly on it. I decided that there was nothing we could do with it. Then somebody in Port Dumna contacted me and said, we need to talk quickly. And I said, I have something I could talk about quickly. I had about a week to spend preparing it. So I did a little bit more research. And um, though it didn't really change the broad conclusions I made uh, with the Irish Battlefields Project, it did provide a bit more detail, this extra research, and I've kind of developed it a bit more sense, and hopefully someday someone will take an interest in it beyond this conference. There's the man in question, Donald Cam O'Sullivan Bear. I'm not going to give a lot of detail on, on him prior to 1603 or prior to 1601 anyway, for two reasons. One, tutors are not my normal field of endeavour. Two, the DIB and the DNB have ex- uh, by Terry Clavin and Hiram Morgan. They have excellent entries by them anyway. And there's other material you could look at. So that's what he looks like, just to give us a visual representation. After Kinsale, Donald Cam tried to submit to the Crown, but was refused. Hugh O'Neill subsequently met him commander of the rebel forces in Munster. So he was caught in a bind twice over. In the aftermath of Kinsale, the victorious Crown forces set about mopping up any remaining centres of rebel resistance in Cork, and this meant removing O'Sullivan Bayer as a threat. The first half of 1602 saw George Carew carry out an assault in West Cork, which culminated in a short and successful siege of Dunboy Castle in mid-June 1602. That's depicted on the image there. Its fall meant that there was no safe harbour for the Spanish to return to Ireland in, and that's one of the consequences of it, and the Spanish were consequently less able and less willing to send any more assistance to Ireland. The castle's fall also robbed the O'Sullivan Bear of his chief stronghold in West Cork and broke his power in the region. In the months after the siege of Dunboy, O'Sullivan Bear lost a number of allies, Richard Tyrrell most notably, and all this helped provoke O'Sullivan Bear's decision to march with his followers from Cork to Leitrim. The sources for the march and for the Battle of Ockram, probably the most important military action on the march, are as follows. Obviously, there's a nephew's account Historiae Catholicae Bernier Compendium. My Latin is terrible, apologies. Um, 
which has been later published and is probably best known as Ireland Under Elizabeth, uh, translated by F.J. Byrne in 1903. There's the Annals of Four Masters, which I will refer to as AFM from here on in. Thomas Stafford's Pacata Hibernia, Volume 2. There's a contemporary letter of Sir George Carew to the Privy Council, present, printed in the calendar of the Carew Manuscripts, Volume 4. Uh, there's a letter in the State Papers from John Chamberlain to Dudley Carton, February 1603. And there's two other sources. One which I turned up while preparing for the talk in Port Dumna, the National Library of Ireland Genealogical Office Manuscript 274, Betham Sketch Pedigrees, blah, 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 blah. And also... George Story, A Continuation of the Impartial History of the Wars in Ireland. The Wars in Ireland, in this case, is the Williamite War. Why is this a source? Because, as far as I know, and I'd be delighted if somebody could correct me on this, but as far as I know, that's the nearest contemporary map to yeah, this, for this battle site. And more on that and on. Now, the major source, obviously, is the Historia. And many have relied on it heavily as a result. I mean, Lucius Emerson has written on O'Sullivan's Bear's March, and that's someone who's relied on it heavily. That's very understandable. But it's problematic for a number of reasons. First of all, Philip O'Sullivan Bear did not participate in the march itself, having already gone to Spain. He wrote his account of the march nearly 19 years after it took place. And other sources, other sources which I've referenced earlier, are much more contemporaneous to the events in question. Now, some of you will obviously raise the question about the Annals of the Four Masters being produced after uh, Historia, but I will counter that uh, using the research of Bernadette Cunningham by pointing out that the Annals of the Four Masters were based on earlier sources, uh, much more contemporary to the events in question here. So I think the Annals of the Four Masters uh, reproduced stuff that was probably on O'Sullivan Bear's March, which was probably written much closer to the event itself. Now, to highlight this, there's a very bad PowerPoint slide coming up. Uh, but it'll give you an idea. The March Doctrine, there's two accounts of the route. There's the one given by the Annals of the Four Masters, and there was the one given by Philip O'Sullivan Bear. This is the one by the Annals of the Four Masters, which I'll read out very briefly. First, uh, O'Sullivan sets out from Glengareth. First day, Glengareth to Ballyvourney. Second night, they arrive in the territories of the Keith and McAuliffe near Mill Street. Suffer two separate attacks. By Tygo uh, McCone Carty and Viscount Muskery. I'll reference the McCone Carty uh, attack later. The third day, he went to Ardpartrick in County Limerick. The fourth day, reached Salahed near Limerick Junction. Uh, refused to change chain trains there. Ballinakin in County Tipperary on the fifth day, stayed there for two nights. Seventh day, marched to Lettera, eight miles on Lena. Eighth day, arrived at Loch Ninth day, arrived at a wood in Portland where they remained for two nights and were attacked by Donald, the son of Carberry MacEgan. From there, they crossed the Shannon and ended up in Ockram. But more on that in the future as well. Philip O'Sullivan's bear account is first day Muskery territory, second day O'Keefe territory, Aherlow, Kilnamana, Salahed, Lavera, Brosna, Brosna, Portland. Most people accept this account, the Annals of the Four Masters account, because this, it has an extra day of marching, I think he, they, uh, it's not clear enough, but there is actually a one-day difference. It takes them a day longer than the Four Masters to get to Ockram than it does 
according to Philip O'Sullivan so Baird's account that most people find that more believable secondly the route is actually more credible when you map it out there are one or two people who still support O'Sullivan Baird's uh, route march but most people who have looked at it going as far back as um, uh, Ireland under the Tudors Bagwell's book except the Annals Four Masters uh, account of the march is much more credible but that's one obvious problem with Philip O'Sullivan Baird uh, there's another major problem with the uh, with O'Sullivan Bears or Philip O'Sullivan Bears account of the march, and which obviously has impacts in Ockram, and that pertains to the dates. The Annals of the Four Masters are no help here because it only states that the march began during the Christmas holidays. Another source, the Cadahaberne, gives 3rd of January as the start date of the march, and Carew, in his aforementioned contemporary letter, also notes that O'Sullivan Bear fled from Gar- Glengariff on the night of the 3rd of January. Philip O'Sullivan Bear, however, says that the march began on New Year's Eve, 1602. Philip O'Sullivan Bear states that the action in Ockram took place on the 10th day of the march. If his dating of the march is correct, then the battle took place on the 9th of January, 1603. I should now add in maybe if my dating of the march is correct. But anyway, a fair contrast put the battle on the 11th day of the march. If this is combined with Philip's account, it would date Clash of Ockram to the 10th of January. In contrast, if Carew and Pacata Bernier are correct in their dating, then the action in Ockram took place around the 14th of January, old style. Let's put that in. According to the genealogical information in the Bedham sketch pedigrees in the collection of the National Library, however, one of the most notable casualties of the battle, Captain Henry Malby, dies on the 15th of January. Clearly, there are some notable problems with Philip Sullivan Baird's account of his uncle March. Other major sources contradict his account of the Ruler March. They raise questions about his dating. And this is potentially problematical for any historical account of this Battle of Ockram, as Philip Sullivan Baird gives the most detailed account of it. Can we rely on it as a result? Uh, despite the issues surrounding the route, the dating of the march and the specific events of the march, I believe the answer is yes. Why? The explicit reason is because the same sources that contradict Philip O'Sullivan and Bear on the route and the date, while admittedly less detailed than the fighting at Ockham, largely confirm what Philip has to say about it. There is also the implicit thing here is if we don't take, if we don't take in what Philip O'Sullivan Bear says about the battle, then we can really say nothing about the battle. So, and I wouldn't be able to give you this talk. Where do they agree? Where do all these sources agree? Unlike the battle's date, there's little argument in the sources over who the significant figures in this action were. Donald Cam certainly led the Confederate Irish forces, assisted by William Burke, John O'Connor Kerry, and Thomas O'Gg Fitzgerald. The Crown troops were led by Sir Henry Malby, Thomas Burke, and Richard Burke. They were joined by John O'Gg McCoughlin, Donald Madden, and his son, with a very difficult Christian name, and by parties drawn from within the O'Madden and O'Kelly, ter- O'Kelly territories. Both Allen's Four Masters and the Historia largely agree on the events immediately leading up to Ockram, and supported. Both the Allen's and the Four Masters and the Historia agree on the size of O'Sullivan Bear's force, about 300 men. This force seems to have included pikemen and musketeers, by the way. And without providing figures, the Annals and the Four Masters does accept that Donald's Camp's force was outnumbered. It also accepts that they were tired. And but they nonetheless inflicted heavy casualties on the Crown forces. Another source, as we shall see later, explicitly supports the Historia's account of the casualty figures and implicitly supports his account of the battle. More on that and none. O'Sullivan Bear crossed the River Shannon at daybreak, according, uh, according to his own account, about a.m., probably on the 11th day of March, according to the Annals of the Four Masters. He and his followers continued north suffering attacks by a body of men gathered by Donald and Madden on the way. 
They reached Maharanirla to the south of Moorfield and east of Kilquan in County Galway before noon. They were attacked by local forces again, and Sullivan Bear and his followers nonetheless continued on their march. On this march, Don Camp placed 80 armed men in front to protect the baggage. These were followed by O'Sullivan Bear and a further 200 men in the rear. O'Sullivan Bear and his followers were still pursued on their march from Maharanirla by the Omadans, and at this point O'Sullivan Bear was obliged to abandon some tired beasts of burden and wounded men. Eventually he approached Ockram, only to find a relatively large crown force under Captain Henry Mulvey and Thomas Burke waiting there. The clash between O'Sullivan Bear and this force gave rise to this Battle of Ockram. How large of the force? Well, in case I don't mention it later, it's always a possibility in the PowerPoint, I'll say it now. O'Sullivan Bear gives us an estimate of five companies of foot troops, of five companies of infantry, two troops of horse, and band of men. Now, company, at most was, according to the state papers, as I looked at for 1601-1602, Henry Malby's company was reduced to 100 men in 1602. Uh, allowing for the fact that it would also be dead pays, basically people who were on the books but don't, but uh, don't exist in reality. Usually, they were the captains of these companies were allowed six dead pays. We're talking about 94, 95 in each company. So, allow for some other people being sick, wounded, dead. You could be talking about a company would be about 90 strong. So, five companies gives us 450. Troop horse size, uh, biggest troop horse recorded in Connacht in 1602 is 50 strong. The rest are about 25, 20, 25. So they're talking 50, I would say, in total. So that's 450 plus 50. And then all the people who've been chasing them up from Maharanir as well. So we've got 500 troops plus against uh, Donald Camel Sullivan Bear. Now, here's the map. George Story's map, available in George Story's book. Uh, which is not available in all good bookshops, but uh, is available in Villanova Digital Library Database if you want to look at it yourself. The road, it's not very clear in the PowerPoint, but the road from Maharnirla runs here, just this side of Kilcommon Hill. You can ignore all those blocks here. Uh, they're not significant for this talk. They just represent thousands of men whose death shaped the history of Ireland. Um, but it, the road would have run here. And... So the question is, where, where would Henry Mulvey have confronted um, Donald Cam as he's marched? I was talking to Porrick Glennon about this, and maybe Damien, because you're more familiar with this battlefield than I am. He suggests, it suggests very strongly, that it's along here at the Ford of Atty Brazel, which, as you were saying in your previous talk, along roads and choke points like fords are the places where battles are most likely to take place. So if Henry Mulvey, good military commander that he was, capable military commander that he was, was going to pick a spot to meet him. It would be, I'm correct in saying Eddie Brazel's around here, David? Yeah, it would be there. Um, it's also useful, this map, is because there's a, along the bog and the woodland in the area is depicted on it. it oh, admittedly, it's 88 and a half years later. There's no reason to assume that they, that those, that it wasn't there in, in 1603. Let's get the picture. Next PowerPoint. With the approach of the Crown Force at Ockram, O'Sullivan's vanguard of 80 men quickly retreated and abandoned the baggage. So the Crown Forces seem to have taken the opportunity to pillage the contents. I would suggest, that's according to Philip O'Sullivan Bear, I would suggest that it means that the O'Madden's and the O'Kelly's who were chasing O'Sullivan Bear, probably because the O'Sullivan Bear had uh, robbed him of food on his march, 
took the opportunity to get their food back, uh, I would suggest. The Crown Cavalry, meanwhile, now charged Bear's troops. O'Sullivan, in order to avoid the impact of the cavalry charge, marched his column along a narrow path through a bog towards an area of thin, low copsewood. Where is that? Bog, bog, copsewood, copsewood, down here as well, down here. So there's a choice of three or four areas. Um, so I don't know exactly, but I have a theory how we could narrow it down, assuming Philip O'Sullivan Bear is right. More on that later. The bog and the narrow path obliged the English cavalry to dismount and to join their pikemen on foot. So effectively, if we imagine it here, that uh, O'Sullivan Bear is coming along the road, he sees a big body of crown troops in front of him, cavalry and infantry. The cavalry get ready to charge him. He decides, okay, the best thing to do for me is to divert through a bog and head for some trees over there. The bog, which has a path through it, as they all do, according to Damien, um, obliges the narrowness of the path and the broadness of the bog, obliges the cavalry to dismount and to become infantry troops, and the crown forces proceed along the narrow path after O'Sullivan Bear and his men. Now, the Crown Forces and O'Sullivan Bear have been now engaged in a foot race along the bog path towards the cots. I should change that to towards, and we'll see why later. Throughout this Crown, throughout this crown Musketeers, that's the wrong word, that's it, guns, put great pres- pressure on O'Sullivan bear, Bear's rear. In response, O'Sullivan Bear sent William of Burke with 40 gunmen to protect the rear. Burke was driven back to O'Sullivan Bear by the Crown Forces with a loss of 14 men. It is likely that the latter move by Donald Cam was also done to buy time to organise what he did next. At this point, O'Sullivan changed his tactics. He quickly turned his force around to face the enemy, despite being within a dart's throw of the Crown Troops. How am I doing? Uh, this manoeuvre caused disorder within the ranks of the English assault. The Crown forces were ordered to fall in and form, according to Philip O'Sullivan Bear, but some panicked and fled to the rear, with others, while others abandoned the battlefield altogether. Twenty musketeers of O'Sullivan Bears, again according to Philip O'Sullivan Bear, who had been previously posted on the flank of the front rank of the Irish force, shot down 11 crown soldiers. If they did, it's quite a feat of marksmanship. Um, it might be possible to explain, I, to explain how they did it, if they did it, but it is quite a feat of marksmanship at this time. O'Sullivan Bears men subsequently charged those crown forces who remained on the battlefield, engaging in hand-to-hand combat. The fighting did filter down through the ranks with O'Sullivan's men successfully overcoming the Crown soldiers in this hand-to-hand combat. Captain Morris O'Sullivan was reported to have killed Richard Burke. Dermot O'Houlihan and Cornelius O'Morrow, according to Philip O'Sullivan Bear, killed Henry Malby. The Annals of the Four Masters credit Donald Cam with doing it, and they credit him with beheading him. Uh, I think they're taking being a little, uh, how would you say, uh, melodramatic there. There is actually also a third account of who killed Henry Malby, Oh, the O'Connor Kerry is supposed to have done it. That's in the folklore of North Kerry, which Mary McAuliffe has written on and recorded. So uh, it's fair to say that all the sources agree that Henry Malby got killed. Uh, we can leave it at that. Seeing Malby killed and the Irish victorious, Philip O'Sullivan Bear goes on to say that Thomas Burke fled the battlefield. He was followed by the surviving Crown soldiers. They reportedly fled to nearby Ockram Castle. Now, Sullivan Bear collected the enemy's arms and colours. And seeing further Crown Companies approach, he recalled his own troops from their pursuit and from whatever plundering they were doing, and continued on his march, leaving Ockram by way of O'Kelly's country. He did this in such haste that he left some of his own wounded and worn-out soldiers behind. Thus is the battle. Now, 
Philip O'Sullivan's Bear account reports 100 Crown forces killed, most notably, in quotes, their General Malby. This is supported by Chamberlain's letter to Carton on February 1603. Most of the rebels are now retired into the north and in their passage thither slew one Captain Malby, a proper gentleman, with most of his company. A company, as I pointed out earlier, at this stage numbered about 90 men. So you could, if most of his company is dead, plus a few other casualties, you're getting in around 100 mark. There. This letter also states that Malby's company suffered the heaviest losses, as you can see. And I, I would argue this supports the historian's account about the chase along the narrow path through a bog. Why? Because the narrow path would not would mean that the Crown forces cannot advance on a broad front. They have to advance along the path in a narrow front. The logical way to do that would be one company behind another. And most likely with Malby's company in front. So if you can imagine, this is a narrow path through the bog. Everything to the left and right of that is bog, saving your good selves. The companies are coming up along here, chasing uh, me I'm go- and... Chris here will double as Donald Campbell and Bear and his troops. And we're running that way and suddenly we turn and fire on the crown troops that are coming. The first company, the company that's leading is going to be the one that bears the brunt of that, of that musket fire, that arquebus fire, and then is going to bear the brunt of the charge that follows. So in that sense, it's one company that's going to take all the losses while the rest behind them panic and retreat. That's the way I would read it anyway. I'd be interested if anybody has uh, alternative theories. I want to do a brief tactical analysis, if I can, which is two short slides, one big slide. Tactics used in this battle by O'Sullivan Bear can be best described as a mixture of traditional Gaelic-Irish methods and orthodox continental battlefield methods. Regarding Gaelic-Irish fighting methods, O'Sullivan Bear exploitation of bogland must leap out at the reader. Like other Gaelic war leaders, he was willing to use such terrain as a place of refuge from overwhelming numbers, and to negate any advantage that having cavalry would have bestowed upon his opponents. Second part. Other tactics employed by O'Sullivan Bear were more cosmopolitan in nature. His employment of a false retreat at Ockram to lure the enemy onto more favourable ground and undoubtedly to draw his pursuers out of a proper battle formation has precedence going back to at least classical times. The Romans were great at that sort of thing. It was also well known in Gaelic warfare. In 1562, during the civil war amongst different branches of the O'Brien's Atonement, Rivals of the Third Earl of Atonement attacked the latter of followers in the townland of Ballymacrogan in the parish of Dysart. Following this, they were soon challenged by other supporters of the Earl, only to flee before them. The annals of the Four Masters state that during the subsequent pursuit, the Earl's rivals shamefully suffered themselves to be all along beaten until they reached Canuckdoscommel, School Hill, in the same parish. Once there, they turned around and defeated their enemy. It's quite interesting. The annals of the Four Masters uh, called this false retreat as basically shameful, and uh, but Donald Campbell and Bear, it comes across as this is really, really brilliant. Um, I suppose it depends on the source that we're drawing on from, too. Um, there is some suggestion in the Historia that this was not the first time Donald Cam used the tactic of retreating before a pursuing enemy, and before turning to face them. On the second day of the march, the Historia states that his uncle's followers were pursued and harassed for four hours by Tyg Bacon McCarthy's followers before O'Sullivan Bear attacked him with his whole column, killing some and driving the rest away. So he was pursued, he was pursued, he was pursued, and then he had turned to attack. And the third part of the tactical analysis. The final tactical element to be analysed here is Donald Camp's use of available firepower. We noted earlier that Donald Camp had placed his shot with the front ranks of his force when he turned. The relevant phrase in the Historia specifically states 
Formula Torres, Vigenti, Quoso, Solvinus, Circo, Primus, Fortunes, Habibat. Somebody can read that much better than I can. Uh, apologies for that. Byrne, in his translations, renders this as 20 marksmen whom O'Sullivan had posted flanking his front ranks. Right. Now, this actual Latin sentence quoted above does not contain any specific word meaning flank. The sentence, however, does say that those men bearing firearms were placed around the pikemen. Now, I've talked to other people on that. I'd like to hear your thoughts on later, but circumvent this. I take it to mean around, doesn't it? Yes. And implies that they, the musketeers, the broken gate, the guy with the guns, at least partially encompassed the pike wheel, their pike-wheeling comrades in the front ranks. Given all this, then, Burns' placing of Don Camp's musketeers on the flanks of the pike-wheeling comrades is, I've got the word sound here, I'm going to say defensible uh, instead. Aside from this, there is further evidence elsewhere that Donald Camp would have had employed his arquebus men on the flanks of the ranks of the pikemen. Just as with his account of Octrim, Philip O'Sullivan bears account of this earlier skirmish with Tyke, but though McCarthy's followers made strong reference to the role played by his uncle's body of shot in overcoming pursuing attackers. In that specific passage, he categorically stated that the musketeers were positioned on the flanks. Alice, literally wings. Galloway. This is significant for two reasons. First, this was in keeping with standard European military practice at the time and suggests a certain degree of professionalism amongst O'Sullivan's bare men. Second, it suggests a high degree of forethought and organisation in executing Donald Cam's plan at Ockram. So basically, there's the aftermath. You all know that better than I do. But uh, I would say it's important in this sense. Ockram doesn't change, obviously doesn't change the outcome of the Nine Years' War. But Ockram does add Donald Cam's fame, either through Philip O'Sullivan Bear's uh, biography of him, writings on him. And it does much to add to his honour. Put it that way. I would also argue that this battle shows, just as probably as James O'Neill has demonstrated in his recent book, that the Gaelic Irish fighting method is not this simplistic run through a bog and ambush people, but it's actually much more tactically nuanced than that. That it can involve things like false retreat, clever deployment of men with shot, and a good use of terrain. Um, oh, well, good use of terrain is a good use of bog, but basically the employment of shot here. And the means that it's employed, I think, also shows a much more cosmopolitan and nuanced and astute use of tactics by the Gaelic Irish than we sometimes, that traditional histories have given them credit for. So I think that's all I have to say there. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.